seriously, thank you for those of you who filled in. I, I was thinking this week, and I was like, I think, you know, like, it was about 10 weeks or so since I hadn't preached, and that's about the longest I've gone uh, this century without preaching. And, uh, but it was a good time for me. Again, I think it was exactly what I needed. And uh, there is this thing when every week you're preparing something to say, you know, it comes Saturday night and you're like, how's that working out for you? And uh, because you're always trying to prep and get something done and there's a little anxiousness. And this week I was just loving it. And I'm excited to be here and back and back. And you know what? I've gone 10 weeks or so without even being controversial saying something that might have been offensive in some way. So I'm coming back at that today. And my sermon today is entitled, Why I'm Fine with a Trump Presidency. Because while I was gone, an impossibility came almost a probability, and it has changed public discourse because people are talking about our potential new president. And they're struggling with what will become of our great country. And even to the extent that religious leaders are chiming in on why this is such a horrible thing. But I'm here to tell you today that I'm fine with a Trump presidency. Now, if you are listening on the podcast to this and are part of the IRS to determine whether or not you will remove Echo's nonprofit status, I'm going to say please make it through the end of the sermon before doing so. Like, we're still cool. This is not a political endorsement. And actually, more so than anything, this is called a gimmick. A cool, relevant gimmick because I am a cool, relevant preacher. And this is what we do to tease you along through the message to help you to pay attention. So at some point, we are going to return to the concept of why I'm fine with a Trump presidency. And while I'm unveiling gimmicks this morning... I get to introduce to you our sermon series for the summer, which is a study of the books of First and Second Kings. And yes, this series will be entitled Game of Thrones. And I don't know if these escapades will be as interesting as a jaunt through Winterfell with Jon Snow and Mother Dragon, which really I have no idea what any of that means. Because if you watch that show, you need to repent right now. But still, the thing about this show that makes it so scandalous is because it shows all these seedy encounters. And I will tell you, if there is ever an apt title for a series, this is it. Because as we go through the books of First and Second Kings, you're going to repeatedly ask yourself, is this really in the Bible? Is this real life? Is this happening? And it is in there. And that is the preface for the study of what we will do over the next three months during our summer vacation. So we are back. You need a Bible. If you have a digital one, God bless you. Aren't you special? If you have a blue Bible, we are starting in the book of First Kings, chapter 1. Does anybody have a verse for that or a page number for that? 235, if you have a blue pew Bible, 235, and Andrew has been kind enough to be the voice of reading this morning. And Andrew, again, this is how we're doing things. I'm back. We're going to get, we're going to be jumping around a little bit, but we're going to actually start in verses 5 and 6 of First Kings chapter 1. So if you'll read that out loud for us, we'll get underway. Now Adonijah, whose mother was Haggith, put himself forward and said, I will be king. 
So he got chariots and horses ready, with fifty men to run ahead of him. His father had never interfered with him by asking, Why do you behave as you do? He was also very handsome and was born next after Absalom. So what we are going to do is take the first couple chapters here this morning and look at it, and we're not going to go through its entirety. So to fill some of these gaps, you might later want to go and read all of chapters 1 and 2. But to give you just this overview, what it is, it's a macro view here of how Solomon becomes king over God's people Israel. And in order to understand that, you need to understand a little bit about Solomon's family, specifically his father, who is King David. And even if you don't have a deep biblical knowledge, maybe you've heard of King David. He's one of the more famous biblical uh, characters. He had a conflict with a guy named Goliath. And then we remember him as being this smaller, you know, teenage boy who conquered the giant. And he goes on to become king and helps Israel become one of the greatest nations in the known world at that time. And here's the thing about David. He has, he is, has the consummate underdog story, right? Like Malcolm Gladwell, if you're familiar with him, he's a, a, a contemporary uh, leadership vision writer. And he has a whole book about David and Goliath because Goliath, uh, the David and Goliath narrative is supposed to talk about how underdogs can rise up and conquer giants. And David has that story. And he went from humble origins to full power. But friends, something that we need to understand about those who lead, the best Leaders refrain from using the full power at their disposal. The best leaders refrain from using the full power at their disposal. And you would think that David, of humble origins, coming from a field as a shepherd, going to kingship, would understand that. But friends, he did not handle it well. David had uh, quite a few flaws. Among many of them, he kept multiple wives. And what's interesting is as we actually look into the biblical text, we're not even sure how many wives the dude has. If you can't count your wives, you have too many. But we know that through those wives, he had multiple children through them. So with at least eight of those wives, he had children. So David has these children running around with different mothers, which makes it difficult for him to keep his family together. When we look, though, then, of his children of note, three we want to look at this morning, and the first one we mentioned right here, Solomon. And again, you might not be familiar with the biblical text, but you've probably heard of King Solomon. And I don't want to talk too much about him, because over the next few weeks, we'll go into a little bit more depth about who Solomon is, but his role among God's people is very important. Maybe one of the lesser known sons of David that you have not heard of, and maybe you have, is Absalom. And Absalom was a really tragic character. What's interesting is in the Hebrew, Absalom named, it it comes from two different words. The word shalom, and maybe you're familiar with the word shalom there, which is peace, and the word av, which is the word father. So basically, Absalom's name meant my father is peace. Which is interesting because the whole life of David does not spell that out. So David named the son, his son, my daddy, is peace. And he wasn't. And it was almost like this thing that David was trying to attain to. But as much as that just seems paradoxical, so was Absalom's life. Because he was his dad's favorite son. 
they had a great dad-son relationship. Society is full of all these horrible dad-son relationships. They had a great relationship, and yet still it denigrated to the point where Absalom was like, you know, it got to the point where like, dad's an idiot. I should be king. Why am I not king? I've got an idea. I need to kill dad and become king. So maybe it wasn't a great relationship, but it was complex, and it ended up within this, this um, story that we could read in the books of First and Second Samuel. We learn a lot about David. We see the conflict with Absalom. And basically, it ends up with Absalom being dead. And when he dies, even though he was trying to kill his dad, David's act, he's, he cries over the death of his favorite son who tried to kill him. Like, again, the, the one good thing that will happen from today is when you're like, you know, my family is a little bit messed up. Trust me, in the Bible, they're way more messed up than anything we have today. Let me go on to the third son, and that is who we introduced here today, is the son Adonijah. And maybe you've never heard of Adonijah, and that might be right, because this is actually the only narrative that includes Adonijah Adonijah was yet another son of David, and we are introduced to him right here, and we'll see that the scene in 1 Kings chapter 1 and 2 is this. David, who was once a young boy, is now an old man. He's nearing death, and because he's nearing death, everybody is wondering who will succeed him as king. You see the little dots that recommend the kids. This is what actually made this more complex, because there were a lot of children to choose from. And the thing about Adonijah that he had going for him was, number one, he was actually next in line in birth order. And for those of you who are fully immersed within British royalty, you understand who will succeed Queen Elizabeth. After that comes who? Prince Charles. And after Prince Charles would come Prince William. See, you've got it all lined out. It's supposed to make sense. In the ancient world, things were not necessarily as clean as they are in the United Kingdom. Here's the situation. is not only does Adonijah have a potential claim because he's the next born son. Also, look at him. He looks like a king. And he channels his inner Vince Chase and develops around him a, an entourage by which he will go and claim his kingship. You see, he gets a, a, a big old group of people and it's just like, you know what would make a good king? Adonijah, right? And everybody's like, yes, Adonijah would make a great king. It's interesting though, as we look at the author of the text right here, and I want you to notice this at the end of verse six, it says that he was born next after Absalom. And what's the writer trying to do with us? Trying to put a little nugget within your head to think, that Adonijah is very similar to Absalom. And again, spoiler alert, is that their fate is going to end up being very similar. Because they both want to become king, and they will both eventually meet their demise. And the way that this works in First and Second Kings, that's why we're not going to go through the whole story, because it's a crazy story. But basically when this happens, Solomon's mom and a prophet get involved in the situation, and they start to work over the old man trying to say, wait, you said the whole time Solomon was going to be king. And so David said, yes, that's how it's supposed to work out. Like, we had this plan. And they're like, well, then what's Adonijah doing? He's like, I didn't know Adonijah was doing something. I'm old. I have no idea what's going on. So eventually what happens is David says, we'll get this all straightened out. It'll work out well. Solomon will be king. And again, we'll have peace finally. David 
is hoping that then at the end of his life, this elusive peace, right? His whole life was not filled with peace. He's hoping it will come. And the interesting thing about this story and how it ends up progressing is basically he tells Solomon, by the way, don't kill Adonijah. Let him live. Everything's good. Just make sure he has your back. Okay, it's cool. Well, Adonijah gets his life spared. Adonijah's cool. But then he's like, you know what? I think I could really still be king. And he makes a power play. And then Solomon says, no, I have to kill you. So eventually, David's hoping for peace. He dies. And as you read, if you read through First and Second Kings, people are First Kings chapter 1 and 2. It's Game of Thrones-esque. Like, your favorite characters are just dying. Because it's what they do. Because it's what happens in the story. Now... What I want to look at is that passing of the torch from David to Solomon because that's where we want to focus in today. And to do that, Andrew, you're going to go to chapter 2 of 1 Kings, which I assume is either on the page or the next, and read out loud for us verses 1 through 4, please. When the time drew near for David to die, he gave a charge to Solomon, his son. I'm about to go the way of all the earth, he said. So be strong. So show yourself a man. And observe what the Lord your God requires. Walk in his ways and keep his decrees and commands, his laws and requirements as written in the law of Moses, so that you may prosper in all you do and wherever you go, and that the Lord may keep his promise to me. If your descendants watch how they live, and if they walk faithfully before me with all their heart and soul, you will never fail to have a man on the throne of Israel." If you're reading in the Pew Bible, it's different. If you read in a new translation from the NIV, it's interesting. In verse 2, it says, act like a man. Act like a man. That's like some good patriarchal advice right there, right? And for those of us ladies, we continually come back to this, especially within the Old Testament. It's like, wait, what's the role of women? It's just like, forget it. Act like a man. Like, that is the culmination. We're actually going to talk about patriarchalism throughout this book. So I'm sorry to tease that. But here's the thing. What he's not trying to say is act like a man in the sense of be macho, put on flannel, and cut down a tree. What he's trying to say is do what a good person would do and follow the way of the Lord. Follow the way of the Lord. David is urging his son Solomon to do that because that was his focus in life. And perhaps you're familiar with the variation off of 1 Samuel chapter 13, where when talking about the first king of Israel, King Saul, who was a failure, that God said through his servant Samuel, I'm going to raise up somebody that will not just be a king, but who will be a man after my own heart trying to say that the idealized version of a leader for God's people is somebody who has a a desire and also the actions of walking in the ways of the Lord. And what David tries to do then is make this very plain for his son Solomon. In verse 4, we see a pivotal point within all of the books of 1 and 2 Kings. And that is... The small conditional conjunction, if. If. Again, one of the smallest words in the English language, but one that bears a huge impact, right? Because if signifies possibilities. If gives us a projection of what could become. But if usually never stands by itself. There's an if-then proposition, right? If-then. If this happens, then this will be the outcome. And friends, as much as we might appreciate that formula, formula, right? Like, okay, cause, effect. If, then. 
It never plays out that pretty, does it? You always want to wrap a bow on it, but really it's, it's stank. It does not work out. And for those kids in the audience, this is one of the things that we parents do to you. Is what we try to do is we try the if-then condition because we think it'll help your whole life make sense, right? What we do is we dangle a reward in front of you. If you cannot, you know, cut the kid with a shiv on the playground, then you get McDonald's. So your focus is on McDonald's, 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 right? Some sort of outcome. And all the kids are like, I haven't stuck somebody with a shiv in a long time. You deserve McDonald's. The preacher said that. But here's the idea that rolls with this. What we as humans do, whether you're kids or otherwise, we hone in on the reward. And this is usually what happens, right? Because after the kid then has shivved somebody on the playground, and this is what I wanted to spark today with the kids. What's a shiv? I'm back. If that, you know, when that doesn't happen, and they're just like, wait, what about McDonald's? It's like, no, 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 no. You didn't do the if part. You don't get the then part. And the kid goes insane. Because it's like, no, I want the reward you dangled in front of me. And what David is trying to do here is dangle a reward. Is that so bad? Maybe not really, but usually then what we do is we start to chase towards a goal with no concept of the journey that we are being called to walk on, right? And really, that is the focus of this. That is the focus of our lives, true? So... When we as the people of God are looking at the then, like, why do I follow Jesus? Heaven, right? Like, there's a goal. That is the whole encapsulized reason why I do. Then you aren't really paying attention to why you are maneuvering upon the journey and how you are living your life. And friends, this is not what Christianity is, by the way. It is not an if-then conditional thing. It is supposed to be, we are within the kingdom of God. We live it now today. We will live it through eternity. That should motivate us to do so. And it's interesting, though, in this text, That David is trying to use that to entice his son so that he, again, remember, what is David chasing through at the end of his life? What's he looking for? He's looking for peace. He's looking for it all to go well. He has this dream at the end of his life where my descendants are just going to do much more amazing things. It's the dream of every parent. And yet it's going to fall apart before his very eyes. Yes, we're going to ruin the ending right now because this is the focus of all First and Second Kings. If they faithfully walk before me with all their heart and soul, right? That's what David says. And it's almost prof- prophetic at the end of his life. It's like God is using mouthpiece and that's what's going to happen in First and Second Kings. What we are going to see over and over and over again is that the if never happens. That all these descendants of David who come after them, none of them will ascribe to this. Good morning, church. I'm back. Be depressed. Now, this is what's interesting, though, is that there's this idea that David giving the charge to his son Solomon, it's like, do what I do, right? Did you get that sense when we read those verses? It's like, look, I was a man after God's own heart. I lived this life. This is what you should do. And then we now go back, Andrew, if you will, to the very beginning of the book. So we skipped it. And some of you OCDers struggle with that. You're like, no, we have to start at the beginning. We're starting it. Well, let's really start out. Andrew, read verses 1 through 4 of 1 Kings chapter 1. When King David was old and well advanced in years, he could not keep warm even when they put covers on him. So his servants said to him, let us look for a young virgin to attend the king and take care of him. She can lie beside him so that our lord the king may keep warm. 
When they searched throughout Israel for a beautiful girl and found Abishag, a Shunammite, and brought her to the king. The girl was very beautiful. She took care of the king and waited on him, but the king had no intimate relations with her. Now, this is where, God bless you people that have come in and filled this place, but this is where you're going to see that Steve can make a difference because I'm going to maneuver through a PG-13 conversation in the midst of a minefield of underage minors. You watch the magic that I will spin and you can send me an email of appreciation later. Kids, we're glad you're here today. When this text was explained to me as a young person, and I do not remember flannel graph this story, nor do I remember ever being taught this story in Sunday school, but actually, when I hit middle school and high school, this story was actually explained to me. And there's this idea that we have this nubile young lady, right, uh, among the myths, and she is with the king, and absolutely nothing happens between the two of them. And I was told, do you see, this is the character of King David, They could throw, you know, drugs to an addict and he wouldn't touch the stuff because that explains who he is. I'm telling you, I was taught that this was the practical application of this text. And friends, it is not in the least, okay? Because what we have here is the scene of a, a virile man who has now aged and they are wondering why he is not as active as he once was, Right? They're just like, look, this was our king. This is the king that defeated Goliath. He conquered the Philistines. He, he, he set conquest towards thousands of young ladies among the kingdom. That is how we judge kingly success in the ancient world. Do you recognize that? So David's actions there, all the little dots that stem from David, within our Christian biblical framework is obviously wrong, but within the ancient world, it would have been seen and his, as his duty as a monarch. Are you tracking with me? So all those ladies were a sign of actually his success. But here's the thing. You're like, oh, so David's just doing what kings do. Yes, but he wasn't any king, right? He was the king over God's people and therefore his expectations were different. And yet he did not live up to that, right? Like read first and second Samuel, you're going to be like, David, dude got around. And around and around and around, because that was his deal. It's not that, because sometimes we read the text and we're like, well, you know, is David this moral character that we need to follow? And the answer is no. And yet God continued to bless him because God was just trying to bring him along and say, David, at some point you're going to get to recognize that this is not how a king is supposed to act, right? So this story right here, you fast forward to the end of his life. David, he's just like, he's doing nothing. He's down in Florida at the retirement village. Blue blockers, glasses on. He's hitting the buffet at three o'clock for dinner. Like he's there and people are like, wait, that's not our king. We don't want this sign of agedness to become our king. We need to, we need to spark David, get some life in him. Hey, I got an idea. Let's go get Abishag. Which if there was ever a Hebrew name that had a great English context right here. Abishag. Like the... The word is actually, are are you all track with me, you British people? The word is just in there. You're like, this makes sense. That is the goal of her coming. Not because he couldn't get warm friends. This is ancient Viagra at work. And again, I'm telling you, I'm an artist painting a picture here in the midst of Playland at McDonald's. I think I'm accomplishing this. Am I? Okay, stick with me. So here's the thing. 
That is what Abishag is there for, right? So this is the interesting thing, though. So you have David, who's the sign of virility. And what happens when they bring him, you know, he's apparently starving, and they bring him a steak and all the fixins. What happens? He's like, not hungry. And you're like, what? It's not because David is moral at this point. It's just that he's like, I can't anymore. And by the way, there are those who have suggested, I've read some commentaries this week, that keep warm is a euphemism for the inability to participate in relations. Again, weaving it like a carpet manufacturer here. This is the best thing I've ever done in my life. Here is where we're at with this, friends. It's this idea that David is now at the end of his life and he can't be like all the pagan kings. You know what the point of 1 Kings is, really, for us to see here? Is that, remember those words that David said to his people? Hey, Sol- or to his son Solomon, if you just walk in the way of the Lord, he's going to bless you. Here's the thing that David misunderstood. David thought that was, it was all about him. And what the author wants to do is make sure that the people of Israel get this too. In 1 Samuel chapter 8, before there was even a king, it was the people who came to Samuel the prophet. And they said, Samuel, you've been a great prophet, but you're old. Your sons don't follow your ways. Appoint a king to lead us and like all the other nations have. And that's very key, very key right there, right? It's not that they just want another king. What do they want? They want a king like everybody else. And the interesting thing is the first king that came along, Saul, he was like everybody else. And God's just like, that's not my type of king. And he's told Saul, I'm going to raise up a king that I want to be. And here's the tension with David. Is David understands the concept, the theology behind it. He understands who God is. He understands the importance of walking in his ways. David's problem, friends, is that he never did it himself. And the man who gave this charge to Solomon, that do this, you know, stand firm, follow the decrees and laws and regulations of the law of Moses, do this. It's interesting is that this is just inherent hypocrisy. This guy never did it himself. He's a hypocrite, right? And he can't make it happen. And this is the tension within First and Second Kings. When we open up the scriptures, many of the times we look for those heroes, right? And again, I was taught this in my church. Open up the, be just like David. Friends, please don't be just like David. He was really a horrible guy, but here's the key. Here's the key. I don't want you to be like David, but I, want, I do want you to think like David. Because the one thing that he understood is that I need the Lord. I need the Lord. And he didn't understand it. And friends, that's why the beginning point of the history of the rest of the kings is David's failure. His inability to do it. At its best, what we're going to see over the next months, at its best, the whole monarchy, the whole kings of Israel was a failure. At its best. And its reality, it was actually a curse in many ways. And it's going to actually hurt many of the people. So let's come back. Okay, let's calm down. Don't make your own application yet. Let me work toward that. Because when I say I'm fine with a Trump presidency, and I, I, I could have titled this the same thing, why I'm fine with a Hillary Clinton presidency, or if you're the green, if it's Gary Johnson, your Green Party candidate, which is just not going to happen, but that's fine. 
I could say this on multiple levels about any of the, those politicians that could be sitting in the White House here. When we look at this, when I say this, this is not a means by which I'm trying to say I endorse their policies, right? So I, I'm not for wall building or I'm not for different aspects about any of this stuff that happens. The reason that I'm fine with it is because I look in the scriptures and I have a base understanding of human leadership. And friends, this is the issue that plagues us, whether it's a person in the White House or a person standing in front of a church on a Sunday morning. Human leadership will always fail. It will always fail. So it doesn't matter who wins in November. They will always have shortcomings. I was really excited eight years ago because I love the idea, the narrative of President Obama coming in here. But there's so many ways in which he has failed. And you can go back to every politician for generations before as much as we have hagiography which is this idea that we look to the past and think those people were so much better than these people today friends they were just as worse we didn't know everything about it right jfk has his picture on currency and in statues all over the place and the more that we find out about his private life you're like the guy was kind of a jerk and he was because he was human it's what we all do so we can look at a macro level in politics. That's why, I, for me, it doesn't, I don't get all wrapped up within that. I don't get passionate about who will become the next president. I mean, I'm still going to vote, but the reality is, is that human leadership fails. It fails in a macro level. It fails on a micro level too, right? It fails in small ways. I'll give you an example right here in the church is that this past week, Larry and I have had a conversation. Larry and I failed the church. We, we decided we're not going to be able to do VBS this, this month. We're not, we're not going to have VBS. And... The reason why is because we haven't helped plan and Kendra and Alicia have done really well, but we haven't facilitated them along the journey, along the way. And as a result, we didn't get them resources in time. And we're at this point and Larry and I, I just was like, we have to call it. We've, we've messed up. And that's why right now I've, I've apologized an email, but personally before you all to Alicia and to Kendra, because they put in a lot of good work toward this and they're passionate toward that. And because we did not facilitate that, we didn't do well. And part of me doesn't want to make that admission, right? Part of me wants to be like, no, I always get it done because I'm the one who gets stuff done, right? I'm always the best leader. But on macro levels and micro levels, friends, leaders will fail. So God bless. If you're like looking to like Larry and I in this situation and think like, well, that's what I got to be like, please do not. I hope that I'm living aspects of my life that show Christ. But most importantly, that's the biggest aspect of this. And the problem that we have, friends, is this. It's the phrase that I said earlier, is that the best leaders, the best leaders refrain from using the full power at their disposal. Power is not exemplified in what you do. Very often, it's viewed best in what you refrain from doing. And this is the interesting thing about David. As we look at his life. Did he do that? No. He said, I'm king. I'll have everything I want. And then the sadness of this of the story is it got to the point where he's like, even the stuff I wanted, I can't do anything with now. And he dies. Friends, the kings in the biblical books that we'll read in the weeks to come, they do not do this and they fail. The politicians running for office, and this is the biggest thing, is they will have power at their fingertips and instead of handling that well, they will fail. Individually, I, you, in aspects of your leadership, whether in your school or here at church or in your work, you will fail in leadership. You know why? We're destined to fail. 
Do you know what the thing is? And this is the story of the whole story. When we pan out and look at the big story, here's the key. This is what keeps us coming back. Jesus, friends, fulfilled this. Philippians chapter 2, one of my favorite verses. It's a hymn about Jesus. And there's this phrase in the Jesus, who being in very nature God, did not consider equality of God something to be used to his own advantage, but made himself nothing, taking on the very form of a servant. What does Jesus do? Jesus comes to earth in human form, friends, and instead of using all the powers that he had at his disposal, he actually said, no, I'm going to refrain. I'm going to refrain because that is true leadership, is not moving. And this is the question for us then, as human beings. Can this be enough for you? That's why I started with that picture of Donald Trump right there. Notice it was a big picture. Because I want that looming over us. Because even showing that picture, some of you are just like, I'm so angry. I'm going to, you're fired, right? You want to show that to him. Friends, if your passion for this presidential election that will be coming to crescendo through the fall is more than that of what this is, what Jesus did, is showing us what true leadership is, then you have misplaced priorities. If you're so concerned about our country's future because you're worried that what happens going to November, we're all going to have to move to different countries. It's going to be the end of the world as we know it, friends. It's never been as good as you think it was. Make America great again. Talk to the Native Americans about that. All right? Talk to blacks who have their roots in slavery about that. Talk to the impoverished. A poor guy walked in off the street today who has nothing. Making America great again. Friends, it's never been great. And the problem is, is that when we subscribe and somebody's like, did he just burn a flag in front of us? No. It's this idea is recognize reality. It doesn't mean we hate on our country. We can still be patriotic, enjoy it, but don't put your faith in human beings because we'll fail put your faith in christ jesus and that's why this verse that we read out loud together god is the king of the earth that's our reality right who's king god is king what i love about this verse so what do you do sing to him what's that about sing to him well if you listen to dylan last week it's the most important thing that you can do in worship Way more important than preaching, which is like it was fun to have Dylan for the last time last week. Because he's wrong. Oh no, this verse embraces that, right? It's not about singing. It's not about singing. You know what it is about? It's about responding, right? It's not enough to just believe like David did. God's king of the earth. That's great. I'll do whatever I want. No, God is the king of the earth. So respond to him, right? Live that out. Leave differently and live daily for him. That's the point. That's the focus. That's the gospel. And that's why I love what we do every week. We're going to end with a time of communion and we're going to sing to him, by the way. We are going to sing again to him. But we're going to have this time of communion where we continue to worship, right? We worship the king. A reminder that the king came from the throne, lived life on earth, just like us, refrained from using all that power, dying for us becoming obedient to death on a cross, and he changed our eternity. That's exciting, right? That's good news. That's why we worship. I'm going to pray. Dylan and some worship team members are going to go up. We're going to sing at this. We're going to pass around the emblems. We're going to have a time of communion. We remember Jesus. Let's remember the King of Kings. Amen?
Heavenly Father, we thank you for these lessons. Father, thank you for your scriptures. Thank you that it's not just a idealized view of life. I like the idea, and someday when I get to heaven, I know David is going to just smack me in the face and say, thanks for doing me wrong week by week. But actually, we need these stories. We needed his failures to help us recognize the failures in our own life. And we recognize, Father, that while some put their trust in horses and some in men, our trust needs to be anchored in you. And in your son, who didn't use all this power and his authority, made himself nothing, died on a cross, and in that act of surrendering power, he truly showed power. He changed our eternity, and for that we're thankful. And that's why we remember that horrible event right now. Thanks for the bread and the cup and this time to commune. We give you praise in the name of Jesus. Amen.